Well, this morning I want to do something a little different, and sometimes uh, we're going to take a little break from our exposition of Romans to do something that's important for us to gather and talk about as a church. As you know, in the narrowest of majorities, uh, last week the Supreme Court of the United States in a 5-4 ruling has imposed a mandate actually redefining marriage in all 50 states. This has such sweeping ramifications because of the institutionalization, because of the legalization of what the Bible calls sin, that it demands a Christian response. So what I want to do this morning is provide some starting points for our thinking about this. We're not going to be able to comprehensively deal with it, but at least it will give us some orientation points to be able to think rightly and biblically about this. If you are um, in the world and you are in your job, if you are in a place where people know you're a Christian, I would be surprised, shocked, if someone hasn't asked you what you think about that ruling. And if they haven't, trust me, they will. Now, what's going on here in this ruling has far more going on that originally meets the eye. The Supreme Court has not only legalized same-sex marriage, it has fundamentally redefined marriage. The implications of this are not small. They are massive. The implications for Christians, and I mean Bible-believing Christians, not the Episcopal church that just said, great, now the Episcopal priest can now marry every um, same-sex couple that wants to be married by them. The implications for Bible-believing Christians, true Christians, are serious. And this morning, I want us to talk about that for just a few minutes. Within hours after the uh, decision, the popular internet, popular internet search uh, dictionary site, Merriam-Webster, Webster's Dictionary itself online, changed its definition of marriage to read as follows. Marriage, definition number one. The state of being united to a person of the opposite sex as husband or wife in a consensual and contractual relationship recognized by the law. Definition number two. The state of being united to a person of the same sex in a relationship like that of a traditional marriage. Just like that. Within hours of this ruling, the dictionary was changed by the Supreme Court. That's significant. In Justice Samuel Alito's individual dissent to the law, which was joined, by the way, by Justices uh, Scalia and Thomas, he wrote that same-sex marriage, quote, lacks deep roots and, quote, is contrary to long-established tradition, end quote. He also blamed unmarried mothers for what he sees as a change in public attitudes about marriage. He says that's the foundation that led us to this. He said, quote, For millennia, marriage was inextricably linked to one thing and only, to one thing that only an opposite sex couple can do, procreate. Alito wrote, If this traditional understanding of the purpose of marriage does not ring true to all ears today, that is probably because the tie between marriage and procreation has frayed. 
Today, for instance, more than 40% of all children in this country are born to unmarried mothers. This development undoubtedly is both a cause and a result of the changes in our society's understanding of marriage, end quote. You understand what he's saying? Is that this didn't happen in a, in a courtroom in the Supreme Court where people decided this is the result of long suspension of biblical understandings of marriage. Alito said, uh, Alito said that the majority opinion, quote, the one, the opinion that, that legalized same-sex marriage, quote, compares same-sex marriage bans to laws that denied equal treatment for African Americans and women and will be exploited by those who are determined to stamp out every vestige of dissent, end quote. He also expressed his fears about what will happen to those of us, believers, who do not believe that gay and uh, uh, couples and lesbians have the right to marry because of homosexuality being classified by the Bible as sin. This is what he said about that. Quote, I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes, but if they repeat those views publicly... They will risk being labeled as bigots and treated by such governments, employers, and schools, end quote. That, that can't be overstated. He just predicted that governments, schools, employers will now be able to call someone a bigot who believes in what the dictionary now calls traditional marriage. His final conclusion was that the Constitution, quote, says nothing about a right to same-sex marriage, end quote. Now, we could talk about Judge Alito's comments for the rest of the morning and week, and that would be certainly worth our attention. But two things stand out to me in reading his dissent. Number one, he predicted, well, let me just say, he predicted two things that stand out. Number one, he predicted that continued modification of the definition of marriage is coming. It's not going to stop with same-sex couples. He said, this will not end here. The redefinition is going to have, have very loose boundaries, fuzzy on the edges. And number two, he predicted a vilification of those who hold to what is now being termed traditional marriage, a man and a woman. Albert Moeller wrote this so wisely. He said, we are about to see, we are about to find out rather, just how tolerant those who advocate toleration really intend to be. Regarding the prediction that this will open up the door for a broader and more modified definition of marriage, get this, three days, three days after the gay marriage decision, Nathan Collier decided to demand that the Montana state government recognize his polygamous convictions. If they don't, which is still pending, issue a license to formally recognize his plural arrangement with two wives, Collier says he intends to sue, and everyone agrees this will end up as a Supreme Court issue. Collier said that he was inspired by last week's U.S. Supreme Court decision legalizing gay marriage to apply for a marriage license so that he can legally wed his second wife. Nathan Collier and his wives, Victoria and Christine, applied to the Yellowstone County Courthouse in Billings uh, last Tuesday in an attempt to legitimize their polygamous relationship. 
And Montana, like all of the 50 states you know, outlaws bigamy and that is holding multiple marriage licenses. But Collier said he plans to sue if application is denied. Collier said, quote, it's about marriage equality. You can't have gay marriage without polygamy as well, end quote. And he's right, according to the law. I'm just shocked that what Judge Alito said happened three days later on that one, that eventually the, the definition will keep getting muddier and muddier for marriage. But his other prediction is one that should stand in uh, stark contrast to how we think about this issue two weeks ago and now. His prediction was that those who believe in traditional marriage between a man and a woman, a single man and a single woman, called traditional marriage, will be vilified and considered bigots. Remember what he said. This ruling will be exploited by those who, determined, who are determined to stamp out every vestige of dissent. And since that's where we stand as Bible-believing evangelicals, we better be ready. So what we're going to do for the next few minutes is to think through this ruling and the cultural shift that's taken place with incredible speed and how we could and should respond. Now, in order to do this, we need to start all the way back at the beginning in Genesis. God invented marriage. It was his idea. And it was heterosexual. Not only is heterosexual monogamy established in Genesis 2, the command to the first couple was what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That would have been impossible for a homosexual couple. You can say it this way. Homosexuality has a decided impact on population growth. The fifth commandment, likewise, plainly points to heterosexual parents, a father and a mother, Exodus 20 says. That's affirmed by Paul in Ephesians 6, 1 and 2, where he quotes the fifth commandment. Sexual intimacy is presented from the outset in the Bible as the blessing of God to heterosexual married couples. And all other venues of sexual expression and deviation are explicitly forbidden because they violate the covenant relationship of a man and a woman, and they violate God's creative order. I think it's noteworthy, by the way, to, to remember that homosexuality is listed with incest and bestiology in Leviticus 18 as something to be regulated against and something that could solicit the death penalty. It was that serious to God. So with all that as just a bit of a background and a bit of a, a historical look at where we are in, in our world and our culture, what do we do? How do we think about this? I have to tell you that I spent, I was at camp last week or I would have done this last week, but I'm actually glad that there was a few days for me to kind of think and meditate and, and do some study and some reading on it. I began reading all of these Christian responses. Some were very well framed and some were, were frankly embarrassing how can we still think rightly about marriage? Homosexual, legalized marriage now in our country. 
Let me give you a few points. A little, I'll give you half a dozen just to think about. These are things you can, you can think about, you can write down, you can talk about uh, at your dinner table. With, these are things that you need to be talking about with your, with your children. Number one, marriage is still defined by God. Marriage is still defined by God. God's design was that human sexual expression was to occur in the context of marriage between one woman and one man. The very first chapter of the Bible says God created man in his own image in Genesis 1.27. And the first expression of that was male and female, he created them. Being created in two complementary genders is the first revealed connection with being made in the image of God. This is connected to God's creative order. It's connected to his person. It's connected to his being. In Genesis 2, which summarizes Genesis 1 in, in some regard, God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. That's the life verse for all men that I know. It's not good for a man that he should be alone. And God said, I will make him a helper fit for him, suitable to him. So when God saw the man, the original man, Adam, and God understood that he would be alone and lonely, he created a suitable helper to him. And you remember the, the way that the narrative flows. It's really interesting. God parades all the, uh, all the animals by, uh, by Adam and his, you know, buck, doe, bull, cow, male, female, Male, female, male, female. And he begins looking around and says, I, I, I see the, 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 the buck and the doe, but I see me. There, there's, there's no one like me, but not like me. So he created a suitable helper to him, one fit for him. And when he did, he didn't create another man. He created a woman. To differ from this, by the way, Paul in Romans 1.26 says is unnatural. Wayne Grudem says this. This one flesh sexual union. Remember Jesus, uh, uh, God says. And the two became one flesh at the end of, uh, of uh, Genesis 2. Genesis 2.24. He says this one flesh sexual union was thus established as the pattern for marriage generally, and Jesus cites Genesis 1.27 and 2.24 as the normative pattern that God expects all marriages to follow. He does that in Matthew 19, by the way. Furthermore, Paul, as a good disciple of Jesus, likewise strongly echoes Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24 in his two, as his two primary texts on homosexual practice. Romans 1, 23 and 20, uh, to 27 and 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And in Jesus and Paul both assumed the logic of sexual intercourse implied in Genesis a sexual bond between a man and a woman that requires two and only two different sexual halves, a man and his wife being brought together into a sexual whole, one flesh, end quote. Without going into any graphic description, the idea of being one flesh can only work physiologically with the idea of heterosexuality. Gordon Wenham, Old Testament scholar, said this. In Genesis 2, the Lord is portrayed as doing everything possible for Adam's well-being. I love that. Everything he could do to, to provide for Adam's well-being, God does. 
providing him a well-watered garden full of beautiful fruit trees. Noticing his loneliness, God creates all the animals as Adam's companions, but they did not meet his needs. So, eventually, Eve is created. But this is not, is this, he says, is this not a bit mean, tongue-in-cheek? God could have provided Adam with other men, other men friends, or several Eves, that only one woman is provided by the all-powerful, all-generous God surely is significant. It indicates the divine approval of heterosexual monogamy. One man with one woman is God's model for relations between the sexes, end quote. God invented marriage. God still defines marriage. The Supreme Court is one that we should obey, according to Romans 13, unless it violates what God says. God still defines marriage. Number two, legalizing sin is and draws the judgment of God. Legalizing sin is and draws the judgment of God. One of the th- an article I read this week, one of the articles, many that I read this week, was a man saying, okay, this is, this is going to uh, draw the judgment of God. Can I beg to differ that n- no, it's not. It's not going to draw the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God. Look at Romans chapter one for a moment. Familiar territory for all of us. Let me just read the passage because every bit of it is important. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, for, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became useless, futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God, past tense, gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity. Now he explains what that means. So that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. The idea here is they're worshiping their own, worshiping their own self, their own desires, their immorality. We know that because of verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And then he lists lesbianism. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is, very important word, unnatural. Literally, it's against nature. Literally, it's against physical design. In the same way, also, the men abandoned their natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, 
For the third time, God says, Paul says, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do thing, those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And verse 32 is so important. Although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval. That's the Supreme Court's judgment. Hearty approval to those who practice them. We've not only given approval, we've institutionalized it, legalized it. So understand this. For a culture to get to this place is not a lightning rod that draws God's judgment. This is proof that God has given a culture over. It's past tense. He's given us over and we should expect that his judgment will continue to flow and it typically crescendos as it comes. Look back to Isaiah chapter 5 for a moment. I want you to see this with your, with your eyes. Maybe this is something you want to mark in your Bibles. Isaiah 5. Isaiah speaking to these Jews who were inverting their understanding of morality. So insightfully says this. Woe, which means judgment pronounced. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil, what? Good. And on the other side, they call good evil. That's about, that's about to be about what, that is about to be what happens. Alito was right when he said, we will be vilified for calling evil, evil, calling sin, evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. If you read the whole chapter, it's in contrast to being wise according to God's ways and God's word. Once you say we know better, once you say we know different, once you say this is the way morality should work outside of God's design, God says woe to you. That means judgment. So the article I read that this latest decision is going to draw the judgment of God is a little bit outdated. Listen, folks, this ruling is the judgment of God. Number three, Christianity has always been countercultural. Christianity has always been countercultural. Now, just for a moment, I want you to put on your, your thinking caps and your imagination. Imagine a world in which sexual morality is promoted, not just acknowledged, promoted, in which sexual immorality is available, accessible. A world in which adultery is common, prostitution is legal, drunkenness is normal, thievery and theft is a constant threat. A world in which most children rebel against their parents. Fornication and incest are rampant. A world in which God is openly hated and the justice system rarely works for the innocent. Imagine a world in which homosexuality is out of the closet, legalized, publicly recognized, enjoys promotion and protection from the government. 
One more thing. And to hold Christian values is to be vilified, marginalized, and persecuted. That is not an imaginary world, and that is not a future world. That's the biblical world. That's the world that Jesus lived in. That's the world that Paul wrote to. It's the description of the world of the New Testament. Ecclesiastes 1.9, there is nothing new under the sun. God did not wake up on June 27th and say, what happened yesterday? Nothing new under the sun. Homosexuality has not taken God by surprise, but God's nature is to take homosexuals by surprise with the saving truth of the gospel. So back in Romans 1, uh, we read just a moment ago, Paul says that having rejected God, society defaults to a destructive and perverted lifestyle, and the only antidote is the gospel. But it's antithetical. It's entirely countercultural. It's counterintuitive to the world. While the Greco-Roman culture was deteriorating, while it was morally imploding, Paul told the Ephesian believers in Ephesians 4, don't walk any longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They have become callous, giving themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Then he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. We're gonna be different Philippians 2, 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. The darker the world gets, the brighter a Christian will shine as a light. But understand this. We're going to be swimming upstream. It's countercultural. And we should not expect for people to pat us on the head and say, we're going to acknowledge and appreciate your cultural uh, distinctives and your moral uh, convictions. Number four. The mission field is not the enemy. The mission field is not the enemy. Think about this. If we keep gay people from getting married, that does not keep them out of hell. The Great Commission is not, make sure gay people don't get married. That's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is see to it that they understand the gospel. That can save them from their sins and the wrath of God. When we confuse our mission field as our enemy, the Great Commission is impossible. Now, 1 Corinthians, look, look at this passage with, with me for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This, this tells us that nothing is new under the sun. Paul was dealing with the same issues that you and I are, the same issues that our culture is. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, one of my favorite sections in all of God's word because of one verb and its tense. 1 Corinthians 1, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 says this. Do you not know 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Stop right there. That's talking about being a Christian. Inheriting the, the kingdom of God is, is synonymous with being a Christian, being a citizen of the kingdom. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then he's specific. Don't be deceived. That's interesting because he says there's a conspiracy of the devil to lie to us and make us believe something different than this verse tells us. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. Now, let's not be so judgmental that we pull homosexuality and being effeminate out of this, out of this list and say this is, these are the things that can make, these are damnable offenses. Oh, they are. But there's another, other things in this list as well. Oh, I love verse 11. Don't you love verse 11? Such, here's the verb tense that I love, were some of you. Stop right there. If you went to visit the Corinthian church in this day, that, that little church on the isthmus between the two seas and the Peloponnesus and mainland Greece, and you went to church on that Sunday morning and you were introduced to people, Paul could have, he likely would not have, but he could have in theory said, here's so-and-so, they used to be a drunkard. Here's so-and-so, they used to be an adulterer. Here's so-and-so, he used to be a homosexual. Here's so-and-so, he used to be effeminate. He used to be. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. They're the mission field, folks. Let's be careful that any homosexual or same-sex attracted friends that we know that we, we have a relationship with don't misunderstand Christianity's message as you can't get married. That's not our message. Now, understand this in context. In some sense, it's irrelevant if they get married or not. Are they going to hell? That's the question. Don't confuse the mission field as the enemy. And when they treat us as the enemy, what did Jesus say? Love your enemy. Number five. You knew this was coming. Marginalization and persecution for Christians should be no strange thing. And you can put no strange thing in quotation marks because it's a biblical phrase. Marginalization and persecution for Christians should be no strange thing. I think we need to be serious and reset our expectations about what it means to be a Christian this side of heaven in a hostile world? What are your expectations? Do you really believe we're going to be put up on a pedestal and be employee of the year and, and virtuous person of the year and everyone's going to love our morals? You understand that your very existence in holding to the morals of God is a constant conviction in the lives of those who live otherwise. You're a living, breathing mirror of what they're not. Because of that, it's going to draw ire. You do know that this is a promise. First Timothy 1, 
excuse me, first, Second Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, say it with me, be persecuted. It's a promise. What are our expectations? What do we really expect? Christian values are not welcome in a society that pursues sin. Now, I wanna, you can turn here if you want to. In 1 Peter chapter 3, there's a couple of passages I want to highlight because Peter is talking to a world that in which Christians were persecuted. Christians were being marginalized. They, they were being disenfranchised, losing jobs, losing family members. They were putting, being put out out of the synagogue, out of the Roman culture. They had no place to run, no place to hide. In 1 Peter 3, Peter says in verse 13, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, it's exactly what we're going to see happen. It's exactly what Judge Alito said was coming. Even if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. There's the verse for us. Do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. But sanctify, set aside Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's within you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. Stop right there. This is, Paul's instructing us. Peter, rather, is instructing us how to respond when what Judge Alito says is going to happen, happens. When we're marginalized, when we're vilified, how do we respond? Peter knew that would happen, and he instructed us exactly. Don't be troubled. Don't fear their intimidation. Be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you. Tell them your testimony. Tell them what God's done within you. Verse 16, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. <laughs> Said another way, the Lord's bondservant is not quarrelsome. Kind, patient, able to teach. We're, we're, not, we're not even gonna be accused of responding wrong when we're persecuted. For it is better, verse 17, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Turn the page to 1 Peter 4. This is, this is a wake-up call verse. I hope you hear the alarm going off in this verse. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. First of all, we know this shouldn't be strange. This shouldn't be unexpected. Second, we know that God has let this happen in our world, in our culture, from our Supreme Court to test us. It's happening for our testing. Verse 13, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, Keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with great exultation. Judge Alito did not know how biblical he was being when he said you're going to be vilified, marginalized, you're going to be uh, uh, called a bigot. He, he's right. 
But he's only echoing what Peter said a couple thousand years ago. We should see the persecution that is coming as no strange thing. Christopher Love, when he was arrested before he was taken to prison to be beheaded um, for the gospel, uh, he, as he was being arrested as a Puritan, he turned back to his pregnant wife and looked at her and he said, Mary, this is no strange thing. I expect this. We should expect that it's coming. And it's not hard to predict, is it? First of all, we'll be whammed on double taxes as a church. You say, what do you mean by that? People will not be given a tax credit for giving, and then the church, who pays no taxes for the things that we, we do now, will, will have to pay taxes. That would cost us about $100,000 a year in our church if we lost our tax exempt status. It's coming. It's not if, it's when. Next, we're going to be called haters and be accused of holding to hate speech. Just look at Canada. It's already happened. Then what we say from this sacred desk will be put to a, a criterion of whether or not it respects all people of all sexual orientations. And without sounding pious or brave, by God's good grace, let's pray that never happens in this church. We're not going to be unkind. We didn't, we didn't write this. This is God's design. We have a really big God to hide behind for our convictions, don't we? Don't be surprised. It's come upon you for your testing. It's no strange thing. And lastly, number six. Let me just talk about this for a moment because there, there should be no Christian chicken littles. The sky is not falling. Number six, God did not lose anything in this ruling. He didn't lose. God did not lose anything in this ruling. Now for this, you have to go to Psalm 2. It just sounds like it was written last week for us. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let's paint the White House with the rainbow. No, that's not what it says. <laughs> saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Isn't that interesting? Their cords, the things that bind. I said that tongue in cheek, but I said it seriously. Amen. Let their values be cast aside. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger. The then is one day in judgment. And terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, that one day when the Lord Jesus will come with his robe dipped in blood, everyone will know the values that we had were his. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. True day, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. If he does that, which he's going to, 
there's going to have to be some purification that happens, right? Verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Listen to verse 10. Now, they're, knowing that this is coming, this is what God would say. This is what I think Paul would say. This is what the psalmist would say if he were standing in front of the Supreme Court. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. This is a messianic psalm talking about Christ. That he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed. Here's what we think. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. We are safe. We're secure. Luke 12. What's the worst thing they can do to us? Kill us. You say, what? That doesn't sound like a very promising thing. Really? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Take warning, O judges of the earth. But when you read Revelation 19 and 20, you know that they will likely not take the warning seriously. So what do we do? What do we do? We're careful to live righteously. We're ready to give a defense for the hope that's within us. Let me tell you what Christ has done in my life. We see homosexuals not as our enemy, but our mission field, our, our friends who we want to become believers. We pray for our government. But by God's grace, we need to huddle up and say, no matter what happens this month, this year, this decade, we will not, as Mission Road Bible Church, bow the knee to an ungodly standard. God didn't lose. Do you think after the, that announcement was made, 5-4 ruling, that there was a council in heaven, uh, what are we gonna do now? What's gonna happen now? Do you believe that God is sovereign? Evil men will proceed from bad to worse. Is this, this should be no strange thing to us. And our Lord sits in heaven and laughs. He's not laughing because it's a comedy. He's laughing in mockery at the, the people devising a vain strategy against him and his standards. We're on the right side. One article I read from a liberal pundit said, someday Christians will wake up and see that they were on the wrong side of history. No, we won't. And my prayer is that the man who wrote that will wake up one day and see that he's on the wrong side of God. This issue is not about homosexuality. This issue is about Christians being tested. Which is what Peter said. This is all happening to test us. Which means that God, think about this, God is in control of the vile moral standards and will use even them for his glory and our good. That's what we've been learning in Romans 8. (sighs) 
In, in some sense, those who struggle with same-sex attraction have a besetting sin in the same way that someone who's tempted by lust or gluttony, disobedience to parents. It's a besetting sin. And the gospel can answer that sin. Please, please, I beg you, do not think that God has lost and that the mission field is our enemy. Let's be mature and circumspect. Think wisely and rightly about this. And remember this, if you understand the Bible, Christians never panic. Let's pray together. It could be that you would be a person who would find yourself in that list of those who would not inherit the kingdom of God. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexual, thieves, covetous, drunkard, revilers, swindlers. Such were some in the Corinthian church who gave their lives to Christ. You can be saved from any and everything you've ever done or thought or said because of the grace of God at the cross. I want to beg you, please don't leave the building without a discussion with someone who can help you understand how God's grace can forgive and change your life, change your heart, unleash you from these besetting sins. Father, give us perspective as we think about the direction that our culture and this world is going. Adjust our expectations so that this is no strange thing. Give us the insight to know that we're being tested by how we respond to the suffering and persecution that is certainly on our horizon. Thank you for Mission Road Bible Church, for these precious people who cling to your truth, who believe that your standards are right and holy and pure. So make us evangelists. Keep us from being argumentative, unkind, but always ready to give a defense for the hope that's within us, the hope that is within us. Oh, Lord, show us our hope and show others the hope of Christ that's in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.